fill this in. Blank is the hardest thing to do in sports. What came to mind? We've heard passionate arguments for everything from hitting a major league slider to sinking a putt on the 18th hole to clinch a major golf tournament. On the surface, these two movements couldn't seem more diametrically opposite, so which one is right? Well, before we can answer that, let's take a step back. What do they have in common? For one, they're both acquired motor skills. Skill is another generic word, like function, that gets thrown around the fitness landscape often, but what is skill exactly? Isn't everything we do some sort of skill? Well, sort of, but there's a lot more to the story. And what about exercise and skill? Are lunges and downward dogs and kettlebell swings skills in and of themselves? Or are they what we do in order to be able to perform a skill? Well, what if the answer is both? Well, the answer is both. So if performing an exercise is a skill, then we'd better dive deep into maximizing our ability to attain it. To that end, this entire season of Fitness for Consumption is going to examine fitness-related topics through the lens of motor skill acquisition. Why an entire season on one theme? Here's why. What do we need in order to be skillful at something? We need a combination of perceptual and physical ability, spatial and temporal awareness, sharp reaction and response times, which are two different things, by the way, sufficient substrate development, and most importantly, the ability to process all of this information and export it into quick, efficient decision-making. So what do all of those independent variables have to do with the general fitness goals like losing some body fat and gaining some muscle? Well, everything. In the controlled setting of a training session, we can take a skill-based approach and add dimensions previously unconsidered. Consciously altering the conditions of the environment, distorting the visual field, increasing cognitive load are all variables that we can elegantly manipulate in order to cultivate what really matters which is the ability to reach the goals that we set safely and efficiently. When exercise movements are maximally efficient, they become automatic, like walking. When movements become automatic, it not only significantly reduces risks and allows us to train with more intensity, it provides us freedom to process more complex information and perform more advanced skills, also at higher intensities. This season, we'll lean into the 100 plus years of motor learning research to examine what it suggests, where it fits in, and ultimately how you can apply it. By the way, we'll also get around to filling in the blank ourselves, but in the meantime, send us your take and why to our Instagram account, at Fitness for Consumption, and we'll pick an entry at random to join us later in the season to talk about it. Welcome everybody to Fitness for Consumption. Uh, I'm Paul Juris and I'm here with my friend and co-host Gregory Gordon. And Ooh. as you've heard, this season is all about skill. Gotcha. But you know, before we get into that, we've had some time off between seasons two and three. So Gigi, what have you been doing with your time? We can't have a season where I don't reference Sylvester Stallone. So... This season, <laughs> instead of referencing Rocky Three, I'm mo I'm bumping it up to Rocky Four. And if anyone, uh -oh. hopefully, if people have seen Rocky Four, if you haven't, his opponent is Ivan Drago, and uh, the trope is that Ivan Drago is a sort of Russian machine. You know, like the guy just eats, sleeps, and works out. You know, all day, and that's essentially what I've been doing. I've been over the past few years. I've put on 
uh, a bunch of weight, which um, I'm trying to take off. And I'm also, um, in my clinical life, I'm doing a study now with a company called NeuroPeak Pro, which is a company that does neurofeedback. Um, and we're doing a study together with muscle activation techniques. And so not only am I running subjects, but I'm also during the neurofeedback training. So if I'm not doing my if I'm not do, doing my neurofeedback training, I'm doing some sort of physical training or I'm doing some heart rate variability training, I'm literally training. I'm a 47-year-old short version of Ivan Drago basically. That's what I've been doing. Well, but hopefully you're using Cybex equipment because that's what he trained <laughs> as, on. As, oh yeah, really? Wow. Well, that's Cybex awesome. provided the equipment for that movie. Is so, that right? Oh, wow. that is absolutely right. I think so, the kids today call it an Easter egg, where there's sort of like a surprise in a that's like only certain people would recognize. Wow, for me, quite an Easter egg. This is All the right. truth. Absolutely, Amazing. I will check yep. it out. So, PJ, I know that you recently completed a a literal cross country road trip, right, all the way from uh, Upper Northeast to uh, California. Yeah, I. And my wife drove from Massachusetts to California. So uh, putting it in perspective, I did the opposite of what you did during your break. You were training. I was sitting. <laughs> so I sat the whole way in the car. But yes, we drove cross country from Massachusetts to California, uh, not because we're afraid of flying, but because we wanted to experience the country and do it differently. Yeah, and it was awesome. an amazing road trip. But there was this revelation that I had. So we're talking about skill. And there's this revelation that I had right in the middle of the country. And I started mm. thinking about it in the context of what we're discussing. And so I want to sort of offer this intellectual thought process, this intellectual Did exercise. It have anything for to do with alien abductions? You know, we were going through New Mexico, so it's possible <laughs> that something could have flown out of the sky. Um, no, that would be an interesting skill evading that. But so here's a scenario. I was just right. thinking about it. One of the things that I did while I was driving was I used cruise control a lot. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you're driving thousands of miles, you don't want to have to put your foot on the pedal so much and have to control the speed of the car with your foot. It, it's yeah. tiring. Right? And also gives me cramps. So I put the car in cruise control and that way I can just relax my legs and enjoy the ride. So here's something that's really interesting that happens. The, by the way, the speed limit in Oklahoma on the highway is 80 miles an hour. Wow. I, I don't drive 80 miles an hour under any conditions, but when the speed limit's 80, like there are cars going 90, 95 yeah, past mean, you. Like getting into Autobahn territory. This is definitely Autobahn territory. So what I do is I, so I set my cruise control to like 78 miles an hour, right? Mm. That's where I'm comfortable because when you go faster, you have to focus more. The, the faster you go, the more you have to focus. And that's a skill in and of itself. Yeah. So here's a situation. I've got the car running at 78 miles an hour. It's going 78 miles an hour at a constant velocity, right? We're going west, so there's the velocity. Yep, right. I'm in the right lane, and there's a car in front of me. And here's the thing about velocity that I mentioned it. Velocity is always got to be relative to something. So if I'm 
traveling 78 miles an hour, that's relative to the ground. So the ground is not moving. My vehicle is going 78 miles an hour relative to the ground. But it's not going 78 miles an hour relative to the car in front of me. The car in front of me is moving too. So the velocity between me and the car is probably around three to five miles an hour. What's really interesting is when you're moving very rapidly against another object or thing, it's easy to sense that velocity difference. But what if the car in front of me is going 77 miles an hour? Mm-hmm. So the relative velocity is one mile per hour. Mm-hmm. That's very difficult to actually sense. Mm-hmm. It really is. So here I am, I'm approaching this car and I'm catching up to it. So I know I'm going faster than it is. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I'm going to have to get into the left lane and get around it. But just as I'm thinking about doing that, I see a car in my side view mirror coming up the left lane. Now it has a velocity relative to me. Okay, so I'm looking at it saying, hmm, I've got to decide what to do. Now, here's where our, the, the name of our episode, this episode, is a flick of the wrist. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I called it that is because think about what you're doing with your left hand if you're controlling either the directional or potentially the cruise control speed. All you're doing is flicking your wrist up and down. I mean, think about it. Your palm's facing you, your thumb is up. All you need to do is flick your wrist up and down. That's a very, very simple skill, Mm -hmm. really. But I see this car coming up the left side, and I ask myself, is it going faster than I am? Is it not as fast as I am? How much time do I have to move into the left lane and get around the car that's in front of me and then back into the right lane? Can I do that before the guy shows up? Do I have to increase my speed? Do I have to decrease my speed? Now, all of a sudden, my left hand, which should be flicking this thing really simply, now it's getting confused between the directional and the speed control. (laughs) All of those things factor into my ability to flick my wrist. And suddenly, flicking my wrist became a monumental task. Because of all the information you have to because of all the information that I had to process and the nuance of that information. How fast am I going? How fast is the car in front of me going? How fast is the car to my left going? And the stakes. That's right. Like what if I pull out in front of this guy and he's going so fast he rear ends me? Mm -hmm. So there's a risk associated. Mm -hmm. So there's an emotional content. My wife's sleeping in the seat next to me like, What if I jar her and wake Mm -hmm. her up and she starts yelling at me? I mean, all of these things Mm -hmm. factor in and weigh into this thing. So this simple little exercise of moving my wrist up and down, side to side, is compounded by all of this information that I have to process, and it makes it a difficult skill. And then I have to say, do I really need to just put my foot on the pedal and take myself out of cruise control? Now I'll ask another question. What if you're having to do all of this and at the same time you have to think about the muscles you're contracting? That would be impossible, right? A difficult task. I mean, difficult, it would be nearly impossible. (laughs) Impossible. So when, when we think about cueing, and we'll get into this in a future episode, when we think about cueing, are we really telling people which muscles to contract? Because when you do that, now you're adding a layer of complexity to this whole thing. I mean, imagine if I have to put my foot on the pedal. 
right, in order to do that, well, before, you know, I have to get my foot up there, so I have to contract my hip flexors, and I have to contract my knee flexors, and then I have to contract my dorsiflexors just to get my foot to the pedal. Then mm -hmm. I have to plantar flex. How hard do I have to plantar flex? Mm -hmm. I got to push the pedal. It's got a spring mm -hmm. on it. If I have to think about all this stuff, I'm dead. I'll, yeah. I'll hit the guy in front of me. I'll careen into the guy to the left of me, and I'll kill six people. That's a great point, because imagine if your wife was awake, and she you know, was also calculating this impending situation. And she was screaming at you, flex your hip, dorsiflex your right, you know, like, which is that's, similar to that's what, what we my do trainer would do, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Holy smoke. So anyway, um, yes, I learned a lot on my road trip to California. And, you know, other than there are still a few cool places to visit on Route 66. But um, yeah, so know. that's, that's my that's my introduction to our world of skill in our first episode. And folks, skill is something that is very complex. So as you're thinking about it, don't think about it in terms of function because there's a lot to learn before we get to that point. Yeah, and to your point, PJ, you know, it's something that I think uh, that we just really take for granted, all, these, all the information processing you do in order to actually perform a skill but yeah when we start looking at what are the ingredients for that there's a lot more to it and that's what this season is all about baby that's right thanks Gigi. Gigi, i think it's important that we have a working definition for skill so that okay. way we have a base from which to start and we can have the rest so mm -hmm. how do you define skill okay so the definition that we're going to use is that a skill is achieving a goal consistently under a variety of conditions with an economy of effort. So let's go back to what we were talking about before, that it has to be voluntary, that it's goal-directed, that you can do it under a variety of conditions. So let's just say we're talking about drinking a cup of coffee. You could drink a cup of coffee sitting on a stability ball. You could drink a cup of coffee sitting on a couch. You can drink a cup of coffee while you're driving a car. You can drink a cup of coffee while you are standing. And the economy of effort is that you can drink this cup of coffee. You're skilled at it enough that you get the, the hot coffee, which would either burn your skin or stain your clothes if you let it uh, drip all over you that you can achieve the goal of getting it into your mouth safely, consistently, and you're not fatigued by doing it, that you've learned over time to be very economical with your motions, that it doesn't cause you great fatigue in order to accomplish it. Exactly right. And, you know, the variety of conditions part is really interesting to me. Actually, there are two parts, the variety of conditions and economy. Achieving a goal consistently, I think, is very obvious. You know, we talked about throwing a piece of paper into a wastebasket. You know what? Let's look at golf as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Tee shots. You can get up there and you can make a an awful, ugly, disgusting looking swing, you know, up at the tee, which by the way, I do very often. <laughs> so it's, you can have this horrendous motion, right? This movement that is going. And it's an action too, by the way, because it's goal directed. Mm -hmm. So I have an action. I'm going to swing this club. The, the goal is to make the club coincidental with the ball, which is down there, you know, on the ground or on a tee. Um, and I can have this incredibly ugly, miserable, biomechanically disgusting swing. But for some reason, for some crazy reason, 
at the moment of impact, the club face has squared up. It's going down the target line. And so you hit the ball 300 yards down the middle of the fairway. Mm-hmm. Now, that one swing was a skill because you achieved your goal of hitting the ball far mm-hmm. down the middle of the fairway. So mm-hmm. it's an action. Mm-hmm. The question is, are you skilled at hitting your driver? Because in order to do that, A, you have to replicate that mm-hmm. crazy, stupid, ridiculous, ugly motion in mm-hmm. a way that the club is always squared up to the ball at impact. Mm-hmm. Good luck with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So the, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So if I get up and, and make that swing a hundred times, maybe, maybe twice I'll get the same result. So does that make me a skilled driver? I don't think so. So consistency is the first part of this uh, definition. Mm-hmm. If I can do it consistently, now I'm starting to get skillful, which is why we want to simplify a golf swing because the more simple it is, the more consistent you can get, right? right. Free throw shooting, the same thing. If, mm-hmm. I, if I shoot the ball 10 times and it goes in once, I'm not a skilled free throw shooter. Yeah. All right. A variety of conditions is really fascinating here because sure, I can do it when the conditions are perfect. But let's go back to your opening monologue. You're standing over a putt on the 18th hole of like the Masters and the crowd's looking at you and you need to hit this putt just to tie to get into a playoff and you're shaking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a condition which is different from sitting in your standing in your living room with, you know, a glass tilted over and you're putting into that. Yeah, that's a different condition. And, and we'll get into this later, PJ. And it's really interesting that you bring up that specific example, because if you're doing that putt, and let's say just miraculously, this happens to be on your home course. So it's quite possible you've done this putt a thousand times on that exact hole when it's just you and your beer buddies playing. But right. there's the the difference in terms of the the scenario there, it's it's a cognitive difference, much more so than an actual surface difference or, you know, another environmental condition. The main environmental difference here is that it's the 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 stress of all the pressure that's placed upon you for because of the stakes that you're under. Yeah, so it's like a psychological condition, even more mm-hmm. than cognitive. Like you have to process this information, but psychologically, you know, you're not prepared for this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a variety of conditions, like you said, you know, drinking coffee. Am I, am I standing up? Am I sitting down? Am I laying down? Am, am I juggling something? Or, you know, how many different conditions can exist that would um, dictate a different approach to doing this? So the skill isn't so much in whether I'm executing the movement the same way every time. The skill is determined by whether I get the outcome that I want every time. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I need to execute the thing differently. And if I'm reaching for my cup, the question is, how many different ways can I reach for it? Right. And and the answer is infinite. I don't have to have one way to reach. What if I'm reaching for my cup, but there's a stack of books in the way? Now the condition has changed. So I have to reach around the stack of books and that dictates a different action Mm -hmm. in order to accomplish the goal. Mm -hmm. So if all I'm good at is reaching straight for the cup and I can't get around the stack of books, then I'm not skilled anymore at drinking coffee. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, your point, very well taken, on economy. Mm 
we we are always training people to contract more and contract more and tighten this and keep this tight. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's not economical. If we want to be skillful, economy of effort means using only that which we need in order to perform the task. Once we start introducing all of this other stuff, we get fatigued or we start fighting ourselves, mm -hmm. right? We end up with high levels of co-contraction in our bodies mm -hmm. because we have muscles contracting that don't need to be and the opposing muscles have to work in order to work against those contractions. And we end up as like contracting machines, which makes us uneconomical. Right. So someone might think, well, that's great. The more I can contract, the better. But if you want smooth, efficient motion, that's not the recipe for it. And we'll no, talk not all, all about that. That's right. So I think we have a fairly good understanding of skill. I think what we need to do now is sort of dive a little deeper into some of the problems that we face while executing these actions in the attempt to be skillful. Mm -hmm. Some of the problems that we have to manage um, as human movers. Um, and I'm going to start off with something that I call the degrees of freedom problem. The degrees of freedom problem. Yeah, there was a famous Russian scientist back in the mm -hmm. 50s named Nikolai Bernstein. That's right. And he coined this phrase, the degrees of freedom problem, mm -hmm. and we have to solve it. So, Gigi, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think a really helpful image to have in your mind is imagine the first time that you or you saw someone, if you live like I do in Central Park, you see right near Central Park, um, you see people rollerblading or at least they were quite frequently. And the first time you see someone on skates, you can imagine in your mind's eye what people look like when they're first learning to rollerblade. Do they look smooth and fluid or do they look like you're pushing a refrigerator down the street? And it's the latter. They look very stiff and rigid. And so the degrees of freedom problem speaks to what are all the individual elements in a system that we have to control for in order to have uh, in order to achieve a goal. And so one of the first things that we do in human movement is that when we're learning something new, we tend to try to simplify the movement and freeze as many of the joints as we can to try to accomplish the most simplified version of this motion. Yeah, so think about, you mentioned joints, and I think that's a great place to actually focus with the degrees of freedom problem. A degree of freedom is the total motion that we have available within any joint. So if we consider the three planes of motion, the degrees of freedom is the available motion in any one of those planes or all of them. So for example, your elbow, not your radial ulnar joint, but just the elbow joint can flex and extend that has one degree of freedom, mm -hmm. whereas the shoulder joint has three degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. So it can move in all three planes simultaneously. When you look at the upper extremity, the shoulder, the elbow, the radial ulnar joint, the wrist joint, the, you know, the hand, the fingers, <clears throat> there are multiple degrees of freedom associated with all of that. And mm -hmm. when we're doing these movements, like you say, rollerblading, think of all the degrees of freedom in the lower extremity. Mm -hmm. The hip has three and the knee has two actually. And you know, you have the ankle and the subtalar joint and the foot. And so mm -hmm. there's so many degrees of freedom in there. And all of that has to be controlled by some type of muscle contraction. Mm -hmm. So what do we do as new movers when we're learning how to rollerblade is instead of 
trying to manage those in a fluid and smooth way, we end up just tightening everything and eliminating all the motion that we don't want, and you end up looking very stiff. Right, and what you see is someone just flexes their hip to pick the foot up as opposed to, yeah, using all the joints in that chain that they have in order to really control the, the nuances of that motion. Right. And, you know, when I, I mentioned Nikolai Bernstein and in also, you know, one of his disciples, Scott Kelso, what they talk about in managing the degrees of freedom problem is how do we simplify the movement? How do we eliminate some of these degrees of freedom so that it makes controlling the system easier? Mm-hmm. And that's basically the example that you provided. Initially, it becomes very jerky looking and it's not very skillful looking because we are we're trying to eliminate too many degrees of freedom. But then as we become more skillful, we start to add degrees of freedom. And that addition allows us to become more flexible. Having fewer degrees of freedom means that we're unable to solve the problem or enact the skill in different conditions. Mm-hmm. Having more degrees of freedom means that we can perform this task under more conditions, mm-hmm. but we have to work up to that capacity and we start by doing less and eventually we do more. Yeah. And well, this, you know, if not a entire podcast, uh, really, we could have a full season talking about, you know, motor control programming and how we create these motions. But essentially, just like if we looked at this like a business where imagine how many employees Amazon has to, you know, deal with in order to run their business. If Jeff Bezos alone was answering every email and, you know, filling every order, he would be completely overwhelmed. So what he does is delegate. And in in a simplified, reductive way, that's what the brain and central nervous system is doing, that there are things in the spinal cord that can, as we get more skillful, we can delegate the way that the nervous system runs and operates these degrees of freedom. This is true. And what's also interesting is that there's a direct correlation between available degrees of freedom, making use of those degrees of freedom, and the variability. And what we see in some research, which is really fascinating, Larry Abraham was a scientist, I think he was at the University of Texas, who was looking at dancers. And what he discovered was that as dancers demonstrated more and more skill, their movements became more and more variable. Uh, There's similar research that looks into dart throwing. You You would think that dart throwing is a very, very fixed and finite type of skill, but in reality, there are a lot of ways that you can manage the degrees of freedom around the shoulder and the elbow and the wrist and the fingers So as dart throwers become more and more successful, meaning the dart becomes more consistent in its where it hits the board, the movements themselves, the joint displacements, the velocities, the combinations become more and more and more variable, not more fixed and finite. So we start to take these degrees of freedom and expand them in order to make ourselves more successful more consistently successful, mm-hmm. which belies, contradicts the notion that there are movement screens out there that require very fixed patterns of motion mm-hmm. that will not guarantee skill, that will guarantee a skill that can be used under a fixed condition, not a variety of conditions. And it's actually detrimental 
to our performance not beneficial. Yeah, I agree 100%. And also, uh, we'll get into this in our next episode in terms of practice. So there's also this, this conventional notion that, for example, like a golf putt or just a, a number of skills that you do that you just practice the same skill 10,000 times a day and you're going to get better at doing that skill which you probably will be, but again, how flexible is that skill going to be? We just spoke about the cup of coffee. I'm confident I could drink coffee upside down, hanging from a 30-foot cliff if I had to, because I- no, I think just... I'd end up with coffee up my nose <laughs> if I did that. Well, I'm pretty confident I could do it, so. But it's just, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's become so automatic, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well, that you know, there's there's so many different ways I can I've learned to get coffee into my mouth that I can do it under a really wide variety of conditions. And if I only practiced it sitting at my office with the same coffee cup, bringing it to my mouth the same time each time, it would actually limit my ability to have that skill, as opposed to uh, exploiting my ability to have that skill. I agree. I mean, I've used in the past. I've used the example of brushing your teeth. You know, you take your dominant hand, you can sit, look in the mirror in the bathroom, you know, hung over and you can get your mm -hmm. teeth clean, right? But what if you had to do that with your non-dominant limb? Like do it with the opposite hand. You'd have toothpaste all over your face. You'd <laughs> be hitting your cheek and yeah. sticking the toothbrush up your nose. So, yeah, are you skilled as a toothbrusher or do you have a skill of doing it with your dominant hand, which means that you can manage the degrees of freedom really effectively with your dominant limb. It's very difficult to manage degrees of freedom with Actually, your non-dominant limb. You know what? That's a great, I'm really happy you brought that up. That's a great thing for our listeners to try. If you just want to see exactly what we're talking about, brush your teeth with your normal hand, then the next night purposefully brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand. So this is a little off topic of what we we're going to talk about today but there's something called motor equivalence which is just you're doing the same skill with a different like it'd be brushing your tooth with your your tooth hopefully you've got more than one you've tooth. got more than one so, but, but let's say you're an infant yeah. <laughs> but it would be brushing your teeth with your foot for example so the idea right. is that um the skill is it's somewhere uh the the locus of the skill is somewhere in your brain and what we retain about the skill can actually be formed by different effectors, meaning your non-dominant hand, your non-dominant hand, even a foot to some degree. But you'll see initially when you try to brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand, it's going to be very rigid and jerky. You're not going to have the same fluidity, but over time you could certainly develop it. So I think that's a great thing for people to try just to get the exact essence of what we're talking about. Yeah, but make sure you've had a few shots of tequila so that you can really add a new element to the skill. You know, the motor equivalence thing, again, that's interesting because it goes back to some of Scott Kelso's work. And he showed, he actually demonstrated oh, Albert, yeah. this with, you know, signatures, people writing mm -hmm. their signatures. Mm -hmm. They write the signature with their dominant hand. They write it with their non-dominant hand. They actually put the pen in their mouth and write it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no one, how often do you put a pen in your mouth and write your signature? But there's a similarity. It's yeah, there's the same. features, yeah. That's right. So there are some features of it that this is a centrally organized process. Yeah. Which suggests that, you know, do you have to practice something a thousand times before it becomes an ingrained motor skill? No. Your brain has the ability to create these general forms 
that it can execute. Is it skilled? No, it won't be skilled until you can manage all the degrees of freedom. And even sticking a pen in your mouth, there are degrees of freedom. I mean, the pen's mm-hmm. going to move around, right? Mm-hmm. So managing the degrees of freedom is really what is enabling us to become more skillful. We need to tighten it up at first. And then, of course, we need to broaden it and expand mm-hmm. it so we become variable. Mm-hmm. So that's the degrees of freedom problem. Let's jump into a, something a little bit different, which is Fitz Law. Paul Fitz was a scientist, again, back in the 50s. That's how long this stuff's been out there. It's really interesting when it comes to how this affects our skills. So, Gigi, you want to walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, PJ, what I think you're getting at here is, and just to put it simply, when you increase the speed of doing a task, there's going to be a trade-off in terms of how accurate you are. There's a couple of things. It's this speed accuracy trade-off. It's when you go faster, you lose your accuracy. And this is very true. And it also has a lot to do with the way we process information and feedback systems. How do we utilize feedback in order to control our motion? Um, and it also has to do with distance. So it's not only how fast are you going, but how far are the targets mm-hmm. yep. uh, that you're moving to. And all of this is, it's very simple. The faster you go and the farther away it is, the more difficult it is to control. Here's something that is really interesting though. I've done this with trainers and it sort of, it freaks them out at first when they see this happen, right? So imagine you're going to do like a chest press type motion. And for your left hand, there's a target, which basically you would reach if you fully extended your left arm. On the right side, however, the target's only halfway there. So Mm -hmm. as you're pushing your hand toward that target, you're going to reach it when your elbow may be flexed at 90 degrees. So you're Mm -hmm. not extending. You're only halfway into Mm -hmm. extension. So you're moving, and and now you give the person a go statement, right? It's here, go. And they have to push their hands to these two targets. Which hand is going to get to the target first? So the answer is you get there at the same time. You get there at the same time. Absolutely yeah. right. And so my so understanding check for you. That, okay. Yeah. And by yeah, the way, so, we didn't rehearse this beforehand. I just want to get proper credit here from everyone. <laughs> the obvious thought, though, is you're going to get to the closer target first, right? Mm-hmm. But what this really comes down to is managing the complexity of the task. What is the easiest thing for the system to manage when you're moving to targets at different distances? And it's kind of like the degrees of freedom problem. What the system has to do is regulate some function. So what it does is it regulates the total time that is associated with the movement. And that means then that each limb is accelerating differently. So the acceleration of the limb is controlled by the central nervous system so that the total time taken is normalized across the two sides. Mm. And you end up moving to these targets simultaneously. So I've played with this a bunch just uh, anecdotally in, when I'm training people. And so if the loads are significantly asymmetrical, mm-hmm. then, so let's say I may, and we'll, we'll have to uh, contextualize this in a different episode. But let's say for whatever reason I've decided to do a chest press with someone and one side is a 50-pound dumbbell and one side is a 10-pound dumbbell then I will start to see velocity differences in terms of how, if, and even if uh, the trajectory is the same, I want them to get to the same endpoint, 
then I will start to see some velocity differences. But it's actually something uh, they they what I've seen is that people actually really want to slow down the limb that has the ten pound, and it's something they have to uh, they have to become skillful at because it feels so foreign to to do it. Um, but and it's got to be a really significant difference in load in order to see an actual change in rate of acceleration of both limbs. Yeah, so it's interesting because now we're shifting, and, and I agree that so that example is a really good one. We're shifting from a distance issue to a loading issue. Mm -hmm. So now we we address that with Newton's second law of motion, which is the law of acceleration. Mm -hmm. Right. So the law of acceleration says the heavier the load, the less acceleration you get. Right. So acceleration is inversely proportional to load. So you would expect if you had a 50 pound in one hand and you had a 10 pound in the other hand, you would expect to see the 10 pound. Let's say you're doing an overhead press. The 10 pound would reach the top far sooner than the 50 pounder, which is much heavier and harder to accelerate. And, and initially, that may be the case. Like when you when you give someone this task for the first time, maybe the first two or three repetitions, you're seeing the 10 pounder get up there. <clears throat> but then what happens is what you just indicated. The system starts to regulate the acceleration on the low side or control the acceleration actually on on the lightweight side so it's slowing down and then it's moving at the same velocity as the heavy side so in this case like the degrees of freedom problem what the system is doing is normalizing the velocity across the limb so that they move at the same rate and you get to the top at the same time it's another way to manage the complexity of the task so that you can achieve a goal in a certain way I'll typically see someone will still get the lighter side up there uh, more quickly, but yeah, it's not. I mean, I would have to really videotape it and time it in terms of milliseconds, but it's not a dramatic difference. It's it's not nearly linear to the load difference. That's right, and you know, as they become better and better at it, you'll probably see. I mean, visually, you won't be able to tell. Like, right, if you recorded it. If you put, you know, accelerometers or if you're, you're measuring it somehow, you might see subtle differences, but you're going to see subtle differences even when weights are the exact same mass. Yeah, that's true. Because yeah. that's the way humans are. We're not symmetrical. We're asymmetrical beings. So you're going to see a difference anyway. But perceptibly, you know, when you're looking at it, ultimately you'll see that the weights get there at the same time. And that's what the system is doing in order to control the variability and make it more successful. And, and it's, it's something that if you're a trainer and you've never done this before, um, try it. Try it with yourself and try it with your clients. So like give them different masses and give them different targets and space. And that's a really interesting way to train people as opposed to, you know, putting them on a BOSU. <laughs> this is mm -hmm. now we're starting to play with degrees of freedom in a way that's really getting the control mechanism up and running. Yeah. By the way, if you're putting people on a BOSU because you think that's going to activate more core musculature, I promise you, try using asymmetrical load. You're going to get a lot of core muscle activity. Yeah. Do a dumbbell bench press and put a 40 pounder in one hand and a 10 pounder in the other hand and then see how your core gets lit up. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to be on an unstable surface to do that. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience, 
and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. All right. So that was Fitz Law. Um, I want to shift the conver- move the conversation along. And now kind of we've talked about environmental constraints in previous seasons and episodes. We want to talk about something called regulatory features of the environment. So now let's talk about we've talked about some of the conditions that we create and degrees of freedom and how we manage our internal functions. Now what we want to do is think about, well, what about external functions and how do they affect skill? So we need to start with this notion of a regulatory feature of the environment. Mm -hmm. What is that exactly? So regulatory feature of the environment determines our movement characteristics. So let's say we're in a totally open group fitness studio. We've got a thousand square feet. Ceiling is 20 feet high. Uh, If I want to do cartwheels, I've got plenty of open space. My movement characteristics are not restrained whatsoever by any of my environment in terms of the way I'm shaping my movement. Now, let's say I want to do 10 back-to-back cartwheels again, but now I'm in a very crowded New York City subway. The constraints of the environment, the fact that I only have, you know, one foot of space around me and the, the ceiling is seven feet high and It's going to affect how I can shape my movements because the features of that environment just don't allow me to move in the same way that an open space would. So regulatory features are just things in the environment like the surface you're on, the height of the ceiling you may be in, the space that you have, anything about the environment that the movement characteristics you are trying to perform have to abide by. That's right. It's So when you think of something that regulates you, it's forcing you to behave in a certain way. So the regulatory features also include time, by the way. So, you know, generally Mm -hmm. we're talking about space and time and how those things affect your movement. To use the subway example, let's say I'm the the door opens and I'm walking onto the subway car. Now, if it's an empty car and the platform is empty, the regulatory features of the environment really for me are the height difference between the platform and the car itself. So I don't want to stumble over that. Mm -hmm. Maybe the gap. If you're in London, they'll tell you to mind the gap, mm-hmm. right? So how big is the gap between the platform and the car? And then the opening, how big is the opening? And can you walk in? Now, what happens if those things change? What happens if there are people on the platform? What happens if the car is full of people? Now, all of a sudden, you've got spatial regulatory characteristics that all those people around you change the space which regulates the way you move now let's think about it in terms of you're moving toward the car and the doors start to close mm-hmm. now you have a timing problem That's so right. the, the the door the moving doors are changing the space you have to move within but you also have to be able to get through those doors before they close so there's a timing element so the regulatory features of the environment of these spatial and temporal conditions that really dictate the way we have to organize our movements in order to perform. Within that context, we have two different types of skills that we talk about. We talk about something called closed skills and open skills. And by the way, this is not to be confused with closed chain and open chain. We'll deal with that in another episode. These are closed skills and open skills. And this is really interesting because this really does affect how we move, how we organize movement, and also how we train. And we'll talk about that later on. So let's start with closed skills. 
Okay, so a closed skill is one in which I get to control the timing. I don't have to wait for someone to pitch it to me or pass it to me. I move when I decide on it. So this is an interesting question, and I think ultimately we'll get to the, to the core issue here. If, if there is something that is affecting your timing, like if someone is pitching a ball, what is it about that which makes it challenging? And it's, we're talking about prediction now. So if I'm a batter and a pitcher is pitching a ball, I have to process all this information and predict the, the timing and where in space this thing is going to be so I can uh, respond to it. When I'm hitting a golf ball, I don't have to worry about when, it, when it's going to be in my area and where it's going to be. I already know that. Really, when we're talking about closed skills and open skills, it has to do with predictability. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the certainty of the environment. That's mm -hmm. what open and closed means. So when you're in a closed environment, it's highly predictable. The conditions in which you're performing are very certain. They're not changing within the context of a specific action. They may change between, That's but right. we'll talk about that in yeah. a minute. Um, but a closed skill is a highly predictable, highly certain environment in which to perform. An example is bowling. All right, when you're bowling, the lane is a certain distance, it's a certain width, the pins are standing there, they're stationary, you have a ball of a certain mass, it's a very highly predictable condition. Therefore, we call that a closed skill. Throwing a dart is the exact same thing. You have a dartboard that's on the wall, it's a certain diameter, it's a certain height from the floor, it's a certain distance from you and the line. Those things are highly predictable, highly certain, and therefore you can organize your movement with confidence knowing that there's nothing changing in that environment while you're performing that movement, mm -hmm. okay? So a golf swing is the same. The ball is there. It's not, unless you're playing in an earthquake, <laughs> right? The, the ball is stationary. It's not moving. Now, the winds can shift, but that doesn't affect the way you organize the movement as it's ongoing. Okay, that's a closed skill. Closed skills are very predictable skills. What you describe with hitting a baseball is an open skill. Open skills are less predictable. Open skills mean that the regulatory features of the environment, the space and time are changing. They're less predictable so that it's harder to perform under those conditions because your amount of prediction, your anticipation, the way you organize the movement not only has to be coordinated with this, you want to be coincidental with the object, but you need to be flexible. Because if the object changes, you need to change with it. And again, we get back to this notion of variability and flexibility and being flexible problem solvers. Mm -hmm. So open skills, sure, hitting a baseball, that's an open skill. Hitting a tennis serve with spin on it, that's an open skill. So when time and space are both regulatory, those are open skills. And open skills are much more challenging than closed skills. But the thing is... These are not binary. So when you Absolutely. look at something, it's not either open or closed. Skills sort of fall along a continuum of open and closed, right? And 
that's what we need to try to understand. Some, so for example, um, when I was doing working in physical therapy, we used the rebounder a lot for, um, for different activities for upper extremity and lower extremity. And so we would take a medicine ball and throw it against the rebounder. Mm -hmm. When you do that, it's kind of semi-open, right? Because the ball is moving. So now there's space and time associated with being coincidental with the ball. You throw the ball against the rebounder, it comes out, comes back, and you have to catch it. So you have to be coincidental with it. And it's going at a certain path, trajectory, at a certain speed. So you want to be able to move with it. The thing about it, though, is it becomes very predictable over time. Mm -hmm. So that even though it's moving, you're creating that motion. So mm -hmm. you're the one who's throwing the ball against the rebounder. And it's coming back to you. It becomes really predictable. It's like mm -hmm. you can almost do it with your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that open skill initially started to get more and more and more closed because the predictability of that action became much more certain. Mm -hmm. So it's open and closed is really kind of an interesting thing because when we're training people to perform, we need to consider whether the skills we're helping people to develop are open or closed skills. What is the nature of that? And then how do we introduce elements that decrease the certainty of the performance environment? Yeah, and so we'll talk more about uh, setting up specific practice schemes in our next episode, but mm -hmm. uh, it is worth mentioning. There's someone, and PJ, she was actually one of your advisors, but Dr. Gentile that came up with an actual taxonomy. All right, so now that you mentioned Gentile and, and her taxonomy is something that you and I have both used for a very long time, um, what is it? So <clears throat> we've got these skills that are open and closed, but then she kind of breaks movements down a little bit differently, but that in a way that I think is really helpful to us to understand what we can do as practitioners in helping mm -hmm. people. So, you know, let's get into her taxonomy a little bit. Like, what does she talk about? Yeah, so it's basically, if you look at it, it's, it's kind of looking at four different features. So one would be, um, is your body moving or is your body stable? Now, this is a little bit, uh, again, in the weeds, but so body stability would mean that your body in its current space is not displacing. So that would be considered body stability. Now, the reason I bring this up is that if you're walking on a treadmill, um, that is considered body stability, but if you are standing on a bus that's moving, that's considered body transport because your body from one second to another is actually transporting through space. So in my mind, it actually makes more sense to call a treadmill body transport because you're trying to transport yourself and to call standing on a bus body stability because you're attempting to just stand your ground. But that's a little in the weeds. Anyway. It's looking well, at. I, I think it was very relevant, actually, but I think okay. you just gave a lot of listeners a migraine. <laughs> you know, I think what you're getting at, and I agree with, is what is the intention yeah. of your action, right? So the action is a goal directed movement. But in this case, is your intention to displace your body through space or is your intention to remain stable? And I think that's probably the easiest way to look at it. Yeah. So unless you're, you know, writing a research paper on this, I think that's 
probably an easier way to think about it. And they'll call these things dimensions. So body stability versus body transport, that's one dimension. Another dimension they look at is object manipulation or no object manipulation. And simply, that's pretty straightforward. So does the task you're doing require manipulating some object or not? So if you're just walking, you may or may not be holding anything. You may, you may have an assistive device like a cane. Almost all of us now have our phones that we're holding in one hand, but you can easily be walking and you have no object manipulation. It just comes down to whether you, you've got an object that you've got to take control of or not. Right. I mean, you know, if you're swinging a baseball bat, that's object manipulation. Mm -hmm. um, if you're catching a ball, that's still object manipulation mm -hmm. because you're trying to manipulate this object. So yeah, it's pretty straightforward. And when you combine that though, when you start to look at combining body transport or stability mm -hmm. versus object manipulation or no object manipulation, now mm -hmm. all of a sudden you start to create these multiple conditions. Add on top of that open and closed skills and suddenly these things become very complicated. So this notion of skill is, it's a complex structure. Yeah, and the last thing, so we've already mentioned the regulatory conditions or just the features of the environment, but what we didn't mention is this thing called intertrial variability, which is really significant. And so intertrial variability just means that if you're bowling, like we used that example before, that each time, unless you're hitting a perfect strike on every single frame that you bowl, um, it's not the same exact setting that you're facing the next time. If you're like me and you're the worst bowler on the planet, you hit five pins at luck at random, you know, you may hit one all the way in the bottom left and one on the top right. And, and so you have a totally different setting of the pins on your next, uh, on your, on your next frame. And so that's the intertrial variability just means that something about the conditions is changing even though it's a closed skill, there's nothing about the skill the next time that's significantly different in terms of that I have to, my timing has to be different. But in terms of how I would want to roll the ball to hit the remaining pins, now that's different. So intertrial variability, especially for closed skills, but certainly for open skills as well, it's a significant factor because it, it changes the movement characteristics each time because I'm facing, I'm trying to solve actually a different problem. I would argue, by the way, if you were the worst bowler on the planet, you would have zero intertrial variability. <laughs> yeah. I because guess you'd fair. be rolling gutter balls every time. And so the pins would be exactly the same setup every time yeah. you got up there. So I'm, I'm a notch above that, I guess. <laughs> so um, all kidding aside. Yeah, I think you're right. So intertrial variability is just do the conditions change from one trial to the next. And Yes, in open and closed skills, they do occur hitting that baseball. And we're getting back to this question of what's the hardest thing to do in sport. But um, when you have intertrial variability in bowling, um, that's different from when you have intertrial variability in baseball. Mm -hmm. So, but that has a significant uh, effect on how we organize our movement. And there is one other thing that and Gentile talked about in this taxonomy, and that's what, something that she referred to as an independent temporal control, which is simply an external start-stop mechanism. So an example of that would be a 100-meter dash. Mm -hmm. The independent temporal control is the gun going off telling you when you can start. And any kind of a start-stop feature, a timer, an, an external timing mechanism to initiate or stop movement, that's an independent temporal control. And we mm -hmm. have to be aware of those things in order to be able to perform. There are some 
things that sort of have sort of this nuanced combination of both. For example, drag racing. If you're in a dragster, if you think about the way those races occur, there's a string of lights. It's either vertical or horizontal array of lights. And the lights either go on or off until they get to the last one. That's a combination of sort of a spatial stimulus, a spatial regulatory feature, because it's the light going off as a spatial array, mm -hmm. but also the timing of the light. So if you're really, really good at it, you're going to hit the gas at the instant that last light switches. That's a timing function. So that's an independent temporal control, but it comes down to how well you can anticipate or predict when that last light's going to be illuminated because that's when you can go. So that becomes a skill of timing and prediction. So what, you know, what is happening here is there's this interaction between the actions that we perform and this environmental context that we experience and through which we move. And so our skills are really affected by these things. And then there's this notion, and this is what I got to when I was talking about driving cross country, is this notion of cognitive load. Yeah. Because when you think about it, all of this stuff represents information that we have to process, right? All of it. If things are moving, how are they moving? In which direction are they moving? How fast are they moving? What is the spatial orientation that I'm dealing with? How are other objects moving relative to me? What's the space that I have between myself and other objects? All of these things have to be processed at the same time, by the way, that we're saying, what is the goal? What is my objective? What am I trying to solve here? How am I moving my body? You know, how, how am I controlling for degrees of freedom? How am I controlling you know, these Fitz Law characteristics that I'm managing? All of this stuff has to be considered. And this is called cognitive load. And cognitive load is a really important thing for us to consider. And by the way, it's something that we become less adept at as we get older. Cognitive load training becomes something really important for working with aging populations and understanding how people process information and how effectively they process information. So it's the volume and the kind of information that we're processing that is affecting our ability to perform. So what happens when cognitive load demands go up, Gigi? Well, you'll see a decline in performance. So, and it's speaking of, uh, Dr. Gentile. So she, in addition to the taxonomy, she, she's also got a stages of learning model, which is, mm -hmm. to put it simply, just we have early stage learning and late stage learning. And we, like if we go back to the rollerblade example that we use for the degrees of freedom problem, early stage learning is the first day you're on the skates, you look like a robot. Late stage learning is a year later, you're flowing around Central Park. And so um, when, the co when you're in the rollerblades the first day, you don't know what to look at in the end. All you're thinking is that you don't want to break your face or your wrists and put yourself in the hospital. And so you don't know what to look at in the environment. You're not sure what to feel, what to, if you should push this way, that way, you should bend your knees. You're probably getting instructions from 10 different people telling you 10 different things. So you are being overwhelmed with trying to process information. And honestly, when you're in that first day, all you're thinking about is trying to limit your, your, uh, your susceptibility to falling. And so when someone is overwhelmed with cognitive load, all these different things they have to think about, 
you're going to see a major decrement in their ability to perform. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and it's not just so there's the the information itself and what's going on. And then let's reintroduce this notion of randomness, right, or predictability. When environments become more random, when things are occurring not in a, in a predictable manner, but in this sort of chaotic random manner, like you're running down the street and all of a sudden someone on a skateboard shows mm -hmm. up in front of you, that unpredictability, that randomness of nature increases the cognitive load. Mm -hmm. When we talk about people that are very, very highly skilled performers, what it means to me is that most of the fundamental movement is automated. The things that are predictable are managed very effectively so that when we know that the certain characteristics, those characteristics of the environment that are certain and predictable, we manage those expertly. And what it means is then we can spend most of our cognition, what we think about, handling these random elements that occur. And if we're able to do that, we're going to perform at a very, very high level. You mentioned in one of our early episodes about training, and I thought it was a great statement then, and it becomes even more relevant now. All right. That, That's definitely here. Yeah. So, you know, you said, look, there are more ways to challenge people in a training environment than just increasing the weight or increasing the number of repetitions that you're doing or sticking them on unstable objects. Mm -hmm. Changing the spatial and temporal characteristics and randomness of the environment in which you're working is really going to challenge someone on a whole different level. Mm -hmm. And improving someone's ability to anticipate what's going to happen is really helping them to develop more skill. Mm -hmm. As you improve someone's ability to handle cognitive load and especially chaos and randomness, now you are really changing someone's performance characteristics. And that's a fabulous thing to be doing for people when they're in an environment in which they're performing. I want to take this one step further. It's different when you're working in a solo environment versus a team environment. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with a colleague of mine who asked me this very same thing. It's, like how much of skill is involving luck or how much is involving skill? Like, what is it? And I said, I don't look at it like a luck issue so much as a randomness issue, that there are random things that occur. And when you're playing by yourself, like when you're in golf, playing golf, the randomness is, well, how does the wind change after the ball's in the air, right? That's a randomness thing. Um, most of the rest of it is really setting up the swing you know, in advance and executing. When, um, when you're throwing a baseball from the outfield into an infielder, the ball's hit to you and you've got to throw it to an infielder. Mm -hmm. There's very little randomness that's associated with that. You know where the, the fielder's going to be and you throw the ball to them. Mm -hmm. But there are things like playing in a volleyball game when suddenly, even though the movement of the players is somewhat orchestrated, what if somebody slips? What if somebody doesn't get the right traction on the floor and can't get to the spot where they're supposed to be at the time that they're supposed to be there? That's a random event that's just occurred. How do you mm -hmm. deal with that? Mm -hmm. So there are 
games and activities and sports that involve lots of players. Football, you got 22 people on the field at the same time, all supposedly executing a task. But what happens when the task that one player is supposed to execute is offset by the defender who's changing the way they execute it? Mm -hmm. That introduces an element of randomness. Mm -hmm. So randomness occurs more in activities in which there are more people. Yeah. Right. And then it's also affected by the speed of the game. Think of a hockey game, right? There are 12 players on the ice at any one time. So with more players on the ice, there's greater potential for random events to occur. And now on top of that, add the speed at which the players are skating and the speed at which the puck is moving. And let's say you're doing a dump and chase and you shoot the puck down in the boards and it hits a crack in the boards and bounces out into the middle of the ice. That's a random event. How do you deal with that? How does your cognitive load affect your ability to handle sudden change like that? And that's a whole different issue that we can actually address in a training environment, but very rarely do. Yeah, I, I feel that the use of cog specific cognitive loading is the most underused tool in all of health and fitness training. I barely see it done. Um, when I do see it, I do see it in some sort of like team sports application. And even then, really limited. So, yeah, PJ, there's so many things we can do. We can, you know, when we first met, we did an exercise, and I think I mentioned this in one of the podcasts, where I was doing a lunge. Now, look, uh, I will go on the record and say, in terms of what would be required of an expert lunger, like hitting a target consistently over a period of time, I've been lunging for 30 years now. I consider myself an expert lunger. I can lunge with my eyes closed. I can lunge with asymmetrical load, blah, blah, blah. I can hit the target I'm meant to hit consistently. However, you had me do it where I had to count from 100 backwards by sevens. So I had to go 100, 93. I don't even know if I could do it sitting and talking, 86. <laughs> so... And what happened was we were just talking about before, it significantly decreased my ability to perform. And I don't remember if I was doing a forward lunge or backward lunge, but I remember that I, just, I couldn't move smoothly and efficiently. I had to pause. I had to like literally look up at the sky and try to calculate in thin air what the next option was. So it put a dead stop in my lunging. And so um, that is something that, to your point, that, in a, in a fast-paced game or other skills, your ability to just process information once, so someone like Michael Jordan, the fundamental skills of playing basketball, dribbling, um, shooting, passing, you know, he's got those so automated, he's developed those skills so sufficiently, his brain is free to look at little nuances in the environment and to predict when someone is cutting a certain way and he's seen things enough and has processed enough information that there's a lot of stuff happening on the subconscious level where he sees a guy sort of move a certain way and he predicts, oh, I've seen something like this before. I think that means they're going to do this. I'm going to predict to put the ball there. And, you know, that's really where we've spoken about this before, really high-level athletes. You know, Tom Brady, I think, is a great example for that. He's certainly not the most athletic-looking person. He's not especially fast. He's not especially strong in the gym. But his ability to process information and predict is better than everyone else's. Yeah, I think uh, I, I agree with you. And, 
you know, going back to the lunge thing, I think I had you do walking lunges and I've actually seen, I've actually seen trainers when we give them that challenge of subtracting serial sevens, um, stop dead in their tracks. Like they literally stop moving to try to figure out what the numbers are because the challenge to them cognitively is far greater than what they're trying to control motorically. Mm-hmm. Tom Brady is a, is a great example. And, you know, I'm a Jets fan, so as much <laughs> as it pains me to say so, you know, when you look at him in the history of quarterbacks, does he have the strongest arm ever? No. Is he the fastest guy? Definitely. No. Is he the most agile? Uh, no. But what he is able to do, in my opinion, which is better than anyone who has ever played that position in the history of the game, is he is able to see what's going on around him, process information, and make decisions that are far more elegant than anyone that I've ever seen, and then execute. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, people talk about him and whether how long he can continue to play. And now, look, obviously, he's got a good trainer. He's got a great nutrition program. He's doing the things to maintain his body the way it is. But the thing about it is, is he's not necessarily relying totally on his physical prowess Mm -hmm. to perform. He is able to perform in ways that are more cognitive. If you were to do that, I mean, he should be able to play until he's 50 for crying out loud. He might. And he might. And and I hope he does because that would prove this point. Um, That ability to absorb calculate, identify, understand, and then make critical decisions and then execute. You don't have to throw the ball at 100 miles an hour. Maybe you need to throw it, lob it in there on an arc, but you know exactly what kind of arc to throw it, how hard to throw it, and where it needs to land in order to be coincidental with the person who's running across the field whose job is to catch it. Now, that's unbelievable. And, and that's what cognition and information processing is all about. And that's really what skill is all about. There's one thing that does affect it, though. And there's, this, there's a professor at Coventry University in England. His name is Michael Duncan. And I've had a chance to get to know him. And maybe one day I'll get him on the show because yeah. I think it would be really fun to chat with him. He did a study. Now, you, you know, I talked about the drag racing and the lights and timing mm-hmm. the lights. Well, he did a study in which he put people on a bicycle ergometer and had the same type of light array set up. And people had to predict when the light was going to get to the end point. And he started off making it highly predictable. And then he started to make it variable. And he had people pedaling the bike while they were doing it. Now, at very low levels of exertion, most people were very successful at predicting when the last light was going to turn on. Right? They were very, very good at it. But as the level of exertion went up, as their body physically was pushed harder and harder and harder until it was getting closer to a maximal level of exertion, that ability decreased significantly. And so the ability to gather information and predict things becomes much lower when we're exerting ourselves at high level. All right, so if you're a trainer, how do you use that information? Okay. You know what, Gigi, this has been amazing. I think we've covered all of these elements of skill that hopefully will give our audience uh, some things to think about as they're considering exercises and training. And 
I'd like to just, we're going to wrap this up, but what I'd like to do before we do that is let's go back to the question that you posed, right? So what's the hardest thing to do in sport and why? Well, now that we have all of this information <laughs> available to us, what do you think is the hardest thing to do in sport? Part of it is based on what we spoke about earlier, uh, predictability, clothes versus open skill. A, a motor skill that has some level of body transport, which also uh, requires some object manipulation, is by category the hardest thing to do. So when I started thinking about it, and then based on whatever I could find in statistics for the success rate. So uh, I started thinking about having to return a volleyball spike. So when someone on the other side is spiking the ball down, how mm -hmm. successful is someone in being able to actually return that ball into play? So like either they pop it up and another person on their team hits it back or they pop it up and hit it back. So there is this company called Volleyball Stats or something that does record this kind of stuff and I meant to look for that information. But to me, based on the fact that it is totally open, there's a, there's a degree of predictability because if you're a volleyball player, you've seen spikes and you know, generally speaking, it's going to go straight down, but still, you don't know exactly where. There's body transport. You've got to move your body to get into the location most likely to return the ball. And there's object manipulation. So to me, returning a volleyball spike would be amongst the most difficult things to do in sport. Very interesting. And so as this goes on, I really do want to hear from our audience. Now, <clears throat> I, I like your approach to it because you're looking at Gentile's taxonomy and mm. cognitive load. And so that's how you're factoring this, which is great. Um, I mean, obviously, I could go immediately to the default, which is hitting a slider in baseball. Um, you know, the, the very obvious statistic that people in the Hall of Fame are successful 30% of the time in hitting a baseball. That is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. But I'm going to take your approach to this and saying, okay, what is the kind of a skill that involves body transport, object manipulation, with very, very rapid timing elements involved, not only of the object with which I'm trying to be coincidental, but of myself as well, under very extremely difficult, challenging conditions with other people moving. And I'm going to say the most difficult thing to do in sport is to score on a one-timer in ice hockey when I'm skating full speed. So a I'm one skating. Timer. A one-timer is a guy's got the puck. He's going to pass it to you. And you've got to skate to the puck. You've got to take a slap shot but without catching it first. So you're going to time your slap shot so that when your stick hits the ice, that's where the puck is. And you have to shoot it so it gets past the goalie. So I'm going to say that that is the most difficult skill to do in sport. Well, yeah, when you look at it, so you're... You're skating at a high speed. You, I think what you're saying is also that once you receive the puck, you really have no time to fiddle and faddle about and sort of set it up. Like no, you don't receive the puck at all. Yeah, you're, you got, you're, you're, you're going to take the, the shot. Yeah. You're going to hit the puck as it's coming to you. You're going to shoot it as it yeah, hits your stick. Because then it would be, yeah, it'd become more of a close skill if you had time to like dribble. I don't know what they call it in hockey, but like you're kind of stick dribbling handle. with the puck. Yeah, stick handle. Um, yeah, look, that's... That that's a good one, and then you have to get it. You've got to, you know, you've got to know where the goalie is in space. You've got to make very sophisticated calculations about where where your 
the little patch of net you can get it into and so yeah that's and and the other 10 people one. that are standing in front of you by the way because there are 10 other people there's goalie behind you and there's you that leaves 10 other people on the ice and so you've got to figure out where they are you've got to shoot the puck so that it gets past those people and into an opening that the goalie is it's fully padded goalie is is blocking the only thing that i could hear somebody say is and this is true Unlike hitting a baseball, which is moving in two planes, right? So it's got a an yeah, up and down, a vertical right, yeah. component and a horizontal component. The puck basically just has a horizontal component. It's not changing, you know, it rarely does it change yeah. its vertical position on the ice. So, but that's my call. I'm interested to see um, what other people have to say. Definitely. And, and we'll get people we will, to weigh in during the season. Yeah. And so with that, I think we're going to conclude this episode. Um, hopefully people got some really interesting ideas and thoughts about how things work, what a skill is, um, cognition. I mean, there's a lot that we've talked about and hopefully it's been really good uh, food for thought for folks. And we hope to see them when we continue this conversation in our next episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Fitness for Consumption. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we loved creating it for you. Now, we want to hear from you. So drop us a comment at our Instagram account, at Fitness for Consumption, and give us your take on what the hardest thing to do in sports is and why, and we'll pick an entry at random and bring someone on the show to talk about it. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to help us out by following us on our Instagram page at Fitness for Consumption, subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast on your preferred listening platform, and sharing the love by inviting some friends to listen to Fitness for Consumption. Thanks, everyone.